a lot of times one of the biggest practical um, challenges that people run into when they adopt a vegan diet is where am I going to get all my protein from without getting like, you know, 20 grams of carbs for every eight grams of protein that's coming in. And so to just say, hey, eat more protein is uh, it circumvents the issue, but not in a way that is easy to apply in a practical way. Kia ora friends, welcome to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast. That was Dr. Eric Trexler. And on today's show, we dive deep into plant protein and amino acids. Is just getting enough daily protein the best recommendation for optimizing your results? Or do we need to dive a little deeper and make our food selections based on specific amino acids? If you want the most out of your plant protein, then this is going to be the episode for you. But first, by way of introduction, and if you're a new listener here, my name is Jackson Burden. I'm a personal trainer, I'm a nutritionist, and a gym owner here in Auckland, New Zealand. And I started this podcast as I was tired of seeing bro science, unscientific claims, and a general lack of nuance taking over the vegan fitness world. If you're truly after evidence-based information from rational experts in various fields, then be sure to hit that subscribe button and make sure you never miss an episode. And on that note, if you haven't already, be sure to take back, uh, take a look back through the catalog of our previous episodes uh, to see if any are of interest to you. I'm super proud of the 38 episodes I've put out so far, and I know the 39th this episode here with Dr. Eric Trexler will be no different. So for long-time listeners, welcome back. I know it's been a little bit of a break since I last put out an episode, uh, but welcome back to season three. I'm going to be smashing out 12 quality episodes for you over the next little while. And all I need from you is a quick review on one of your podcast apps, whether it's Apple or Spotify, throw up a five-star review there and uh, help more people find the show. And with that, let's dive in. This is Dr. Eric Trexler on plant protein and optimizing amino acids. Okay, Eric, so I just want to pretty much jump straight into this one with you and um I guess before we do jump into the the actual uh, the nitty gritty of the discussion is maybe you can give a bit of an idea of who you are, what you specialize in for the listeners uh, who potentially haven't heard of you before. Sure. Yeah. So my name's Eric Trexler and uh, I've been focusing on sports nutrition for a while now. I uh, did a master's degree and a PhD where that was kind of my research focus and Sports nutrition, I, I would kind of define it as nutrition for the purpose of either uh, influencing sport performance, physical performance, or body composition. Uh, so, for example, nutritional strategies to build muscle would kind of fall under that umbrella. Uh, so, academically, that's been a focus of a lot of my research. Um, after finishing up my schooling, I, I've been working for a company called Stronger by Science, um, where we do a lot of educational stuff. We do a podcast, articles, books, things like that. We've got a coaching team that I manage there. Uh, I also review uh, for the Mass Research Review. I'm one of the co-authors along with Eric Helms, who I I know you're familiar with. Um, And we also, we made a nutrition app recently called Macro Factor, where it was kind of fun because all the stuff I've been writing about and talking about on podcasts, we could actually build that into into code, you know, and kind of make a product that helps people with their nutrition. So basically, I I do a whole bunch of nutrition stuff. And I also, um, within the last year or two i can't really remember the timeline with covid the time is all just arbitrary <laughs> it's just a blur yeah. but at some point between the time i was born and now i decided to uh to try out a vegetarian diet so i do currently consume a vegetarian diet oh that's so interesting eric because i i um i didn't actually know that when uh when I contacted you and it's only recently that I was listening to one of your, your older podcasts on struggle by science. And you had mentioned that, um, and you had some questions from one of your listeners around your transition, which I thought was quite, quite interesting. Uh, but that's really cool because I guess up until this point, um, obviously you were following more of an omnivorous diet, um, more of a traditional diet. And a lot of the, um, the research that has been coming out around, uh, you know, plant proteins and their effects on hypertrophy, um, 
you're potentially looking at a lot of that more through a lens of maybe a, a more of a um, an unbiased viewpoint, which is really cool because it was you know you're you're following more of a traditional omnivorous diet, um, potentially. Yeah, you know, I know. I know you're probably including a decent amount of plant proteins as well, um, but now you've obviously transitioned that way as well. Is is I, I'd love to ask you the, the question, Eric. Has looking into the research a little bit more on plant proteins factored into you transitioning to a vegetarian diet yourself at all, or is it being more so um, from another aspect of you know, you know, planetary health or ethical um, aspects of of that transition? Yeah, so my decision to uh, transition over to a vegetarian diet was more related just to animal welfare. Like yeah. it, was, it was pretty straightforward. And so within that, um, within that context, I pretty much uh, was fine sacrificing some some progress. Like uh, you know, I'm not uh, a hyper competitive lifter these days. You know, I, I've been there, but um, at this point you know, I, I was comfortable saying, you know what, if I'm only getting 80 or 90% of my, my gains that I'm fighting for, that is, you know, basically a tax I'm willing to pay, you know, a sacrifice mm. that I'm willing to make. Um, but I was really pleasantly surprised over the last uh, maybe 18 months or so, there have been a few really big studies, big in terms of impact and in terms of practical application uh, but some really impactful studies that have come out over the last 18 months that even though I was comfortable kind of leaving some percentage of my progress on the table because it was worth it to me, uh, I was actually pleasantly surprised to see that, uh, you know, vegetarian and even, you know, completely vegan diets were outperforming what I would have expected uh, based on kind of a mechanistic understanding of proteins and, and their amino acid composition. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I, I love to ask this question to to some of my friends who are, are predominantly vegan. Um, and I ask them, "Hey, look, if if you knew that you know from this day forth you would not get any more you know gains or results from your training because of your dietary choices, would you continue making those dietary choices? You know what I mean? Um, and because for a lot of us, it is more of an ethical decision, and we would." you know, probably likely stand by that, whether we, we made gains in the gym or not. But the beautiful thing about this and, and what I've been excited about reading your reviews of these studies coming out in regards to plant protein, it's, it's been exciting to see um, that, yeah, we don't necessarily have to sacrifice uh, our, our our productivity in the gym or in training or whatever we like to do. Um, so it's been really, it's been an exciting time, I guess, for more of the, the evidence-based uh, vegan community as well, who want to, you know, understand things on a little bit more nuanced level and understand what the data is saying. So it's been really cool. And, and, you know, your, your reviews have, have helped, helped a lot with that. And I'd love to ask you, Eric, like before, I guess, before these studies came out, what was your view of, I guess, plant proteins and, their effects in the diet on in terms of hypertrophy and strength and and those type of outcomes that's a good question and the thing is you know since we've been doing the podcast for like close to three years now and all the articles and stuff you can kind of look at my perspectives as like time stamped you know yeah. like everything's on the record so you can kind of trace right. trace back and hold me accountable um you know, before I had even really considered dabbling in a plant-based diet, uh, before any of this research came out, by the way, you know, like if, if you were to ask me two, two and a half years ago, what's the deal with plant-based proteins? I would say there's good news and bad news. The good news being you can make equivalent progress on a vegan diet compared to an omnivorous diet. You can use these plant-based proteins and achieve similar outcomes. However, the bad news is it requires more planning and you probably have to eat more total protein. So up until a couple of years ago, a lot of the understanding related to this question was based on a very basic mechanistic understanding of amino acid composition and some very brief acute studies looking at muscle protein synthesis after eating this protein versus that protein. And if you kind of piece together the answers based on that information, which was all we had really until a couple of years ago, uh, you would be forgiven for concluding that, you know, this can be a viable approach for someone interested in strength and muscularity. 
but you probably need to eat more total protein to account for the lower relative quality of these plant-based proteins. Mm -hmm. And that quality pertains to indices of amino acid composition, but also things like digestibility and absorption kinetics as well. So yeah, if, if you asked me a couple years ago, I you know that would have been my response is we can make this work, but we have to work a little harder and we probably have to eat more total protein to get the same amount of bang for our buck in terms of building muscle. Yeah, cool. And, I, and I'd love to actually touch on, I guess, the difference, and, and you alluded to this in your article, the difference between a study that just compares muscle protein synthesis responses to a meal and a study that actually uh, measures uh, longitudinal hypertrophy. Um, but before we dive into that, Eric, maybe for the listeners, because you know, obviously we'll probably have some people that are uh, a little uh, lesson to know about, hey, what is actually an amino acid? And maybe when we talk about muscle protein synthesis, what actually is occurring at that point? So maybe we can, uh, you know, just de- define some terms really quickly in terms of, hey, what are what are essential and non-essential amino acids? And then potentially, how does uh, muscle protein synthesis uh, factor into this? And why is it so important for um, our goals in terms of training? Yeah, so... Uh- First off, you know, essential and non-essential, these are terms that apply to amino acids, but they apply to a lot of other things in the diet, right? So we've got essential vitamins and minerals, we've got, uh, you know, uh, we've got essential uh, fatty acids, uh, as well as amino acids. And so whenever you, you see essential in the world of nutrition, what they're really saying is you need to get that from your diet, your, your body cannot make it... Um, inadequate amounts from just kind of the raw materials floating around. You know, it's it's something that if you do not seek it out in your diet, your body cannot make sufficient quantities and that will have an adverse impact on, you know, health and function basically. So when we talk about essential amino acids, um, these are amino acids that we do need to seek out from our diet. Uh, And then non-essential amino acids, these are amino acids that we can kind of piece together and we can synthesize them as long as we've got adequate raw materials available. Uh, as long as the building blocks are around, we can kind of rearrange things and put those together. But essential amino acids are obviously very important. That's why they're called essential. We need to get them from our diet. And this comes into the, the conversation with protein because animal-based proteins tend to pretty much across the board be very, very high quality proteins, which means Uh, You know, when we talk about being high versus low quality, a high quality protein has all of the essential amino acids that we need in adequate quantities. So we really have all of our bases covered when we eat something like, you know, milk protein, chicken protein, beef protein. Uh, With plant-based proteins, those uh, in many cases will lack at least one of the essential amino acids. And that doesn't mean it, it lacks it entirely. It means that, you know, the relative amount of it is is just too low to be considered suitable. You know, it's hmm. it's lacking sufficient quantities of all of these different essential amino acids. Um, so so that that's kind of the essential versus non-essential thing and how it factors into uh, protein quality. Um, was there another term you wanted me to define there? I think muscle yeah. protein synthesis. Yeah, if we can dive, dive into like how, you know, maybe these uh, essential amino acids then play a role in achieving, you know, muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the proteins in our body are constantly turning over, which means they're they're breaking down, they're getting rebuilt. We're kind of constantly recycling these proteins. Um And in order to build proteins, we need to have all the raw materials there. And so what happens, you know, within the context of resistance training, for example, just to be, you know, straight to the point, when we lift weights, uh, you know, we, we do prime our muscles to the anabolic stimulus from protein feeding. And so then we consume some protein and leucine is a particularly important essential amino acid because leucine is the amino acid that actually stimulates muscle protein synthesis, which is exactly what it sounds like. This is the process of our muscles synthesizing new proteins to basically build new muscle tissue. Hmm. So what what happens when we consume dietary protein is the leucine stimulates muscle protein synthesis but in order for that process to continue efficiently and effectively, we need, adequate amounts of all of the essential amino acids to be present. 
And so what that means is if we are exclusively consuming uh, you know, a particular protein source that consistently lacks an essential amino acid, that is something that's going to hinder our ability to build muscle over time. If we are consistently lacking one of these critical building blocks, that's going to be a problem for us in the long run. But one thing that that you kind of alluded to previously is we can use some of these studies on muscle protein synthesis, uh, but we should not conflate that with actual hypertrophy or the process of actually building new muscle tissue. So is, is this a good time to kind of dive into that distinction? Yeah, I think so, because I guess some of those older studies you had mentioned, um, they were generally comparing, you know, soy protein with, you know, milk protein or soy protein with whatever other animal uh, protein. And that's when we saw these these potentially lower I think effects on muscle protein synthesis from the the soy protein, um, but then yeah. you know I guess then we look at the the more recent studies and that sort of twelve week more of a long term hypertrophy study where we saw comparable results between omnivores and, and plant eaters. Um, you you see a slight different effect. So yeah, I'd love to hear your take on yeah you know, why why is it that potentially a single study on on a single meal is maybe not uh, going to give us the full picture of long-term changes in muscle mass. Yeah. So the general paradigm, you know, there are a lot of studies looking at muscle protein synthesis. And like I said, this is the process by which we are synthesizing new muscle proteins. Um, the general paradigm there is to do an intervention, whether it's a resistance training workout or a protein feeding, you know, whatever the case may be. In this context, we're usually saying, you know, here's 30 grams of soy protein, here's 30 grams of whey protein. And the general paradigm is to look at rates of muscle protein synthesis by, by using some kind of uh, labeled isotopes, little markers, and they, see, they look at differences in muscle incorporation of these labeled amino acids. But they're looking at responses over a very short time frame. We're talking about maybe four, five, six hours, so, something in, in that general time frame. And importantly, you know, I mentioned that we're constantly turning these proteins over. We're breaking them down. We're building them up. Muscle protein synthesis is only one side of that equation. So that alone should tell you we have to have some acknowledgement that mm. there are some limitations of using this process and and making inferences about long-term gains in actual muscle tissue. So the first part is that muscle protein synthesis is only half of that equation balancing the process of building up tissues and, and breaking down, you know, the, these proteins and tissue as well. Right. Another issue is that when we look at uh, resistance training, for example, it, it's going to heighten our sensitivity to the anabolic effect of protein feeding for a very long time, you know, in many cases, upwards of 24, even 48 hours. And so if we are only looking at a time frame of like maybe four or five hours, you also call into question how effectively that's going to represent the long term, you know, if, if each workout is, is, is kind of uh, sensitizing this process for a very long time frame, and we're only looking at the first little glimpse of it, you have to question whether or not we're really capturing the full effect in those types of studies. Um, and a really fascinating review paper came out uh, just a couple months ago by uh, Wittard and colleagues. And, you know, it was a group of researchers who have done a lot of really good research in muscle protein synthesis. I mean, these are authors who do the original studies with these types of methods. And the the paper largely was based or largely aimed to explain why there's a distinction between protein synthesis and longitudinal hypertrophy over time, because there have been quite a few studies where intuitively you expect muscle protein synthesis, building muscle proteins, that's going to correlate perfectly with muscle growth over time. But there have been multiple studies now showing that the correlation is actually quite poor. And so in this review paper, these authors kind of went into it and said, here's why we study this. Here's what we can do with it. But here's what we can't do with it. And what we can't do with it is say, just because this causes greater rates of muscle protein synthesis over six hours, I'm going to conclude that over two years, that's going to lead to more muscle growth. We can't really make that jump. 
And one of the most eye-opening limitations in my, from my perspective, when you look at this muscle protein synthesis research, is that um, there are certain conditions that have to be met in order for the muscle protein synthesis response to really even have a chance of telling us a lot about hypertrophy. So if you're looking at muscle protein synthesis and you're measuring over a longer time frame and you're using well-trained participants who are doing a type of exercise that they are very well accustomed to, that maximizes your likelihood that what you're seeing is actually at least somewhat representative of long-term hypertrophy potential. But let's look at the opposite of that. If we look at a very untrained person who's doing a very unaccustomed form of exercise, uh, and we're looking at, you know, four to six hours post-workout, what we're really seeing there, that muscle protein synthesis uh, process, those rates of protein synthesis are largely going to be tied to just remodeling processes. So not necessarily building brand new proteins that are going to make muscles larger, but just kind of the repair process of like, listen, this muscle's untrained. We're not used to this kind of exercise. We're trying to figure out what the hell just happened (laughs) and just kind of like limit the damage and try to, you know, recycle some of this protein. So the the immediate look into that window is really not reflective of long-term hypertrophy, which is why now, like I said, you, you can kind of theorize all day about what these measurements mean and what they don't mean, but the proof is in the pudding. And, and when we look at the actual, you know, we have plenty of studies that look within a person, was their initial muscle protein synthesis response actually predictive of how much muscle they gained during the study? Time and time again, those correlations tend to be quite poor. And that's really important for this conversation because like I said, we didn't really have a lot of uh, we didn't have a lot of longitudinal hypertrophy research on vegan diets that had any degree of ecological validity, right? Mm-hmm. So we weren't really looking at vegan diets that were truly designed to support hypertrophy in the long run. It was just a, a genuine lack of data, and so when you lack that data, you have to use what is available. And at that point, it was these little glimpses at short-term responses in muscle protein synthesis, largely in untrained people, in conditions that really are not totally reflective of longitudinal hypertrophy potential. So, um, you know, this, this was one of those instances where we had to form some kind of conclusion based on the evidence that was available two or three years ago. And that was really the best you could do. Um, but But fortunately... There's been some research in the last couple of years that that has said, well, if we're interested in hypertrophy over time, let's measure hypertrophy over time. Uh, And so those types of findings have to carry a lot more weight when you're trying to sort through this type of this type of evidence. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And and I guess um, maybe maybe we could just sort of dovetail into that particular study. Uh, I think it was uh, I can't actually remember. The he- yeah, he- heavier Lorraine et al. I can't quite pronounce that one, but it was last year. And that, yeah, they did have that 12 week study and both groups consuming 1.6 grams of protein per kilo um, and similar responses in terms of muscle growth over that, that 12 week period. Now, if, if we, I guess, if we go in with the assumption of, you know, muscle protein synthesis is somewhat important. Uh, in the you know post meal state, I guess this would be a great time to to have a look at one of the common uh, common suggested uh, methods, I guess, of uh, getting around some of the shortcomings of lower amino acid quality in some of these plant proteins is to you know just increase your your total protein intake uh you know to to significant amounts and that's and you alluded to that before there's generally been a recommendation that's been seen um and often i think within the plant community as well it's it's uh it 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 can go people can go a little too simplistic with it in terms of saying hey look let's just get enough protein and then that's all they focus on is just enough protein but i think there can be especially if you're looking at trying to optimize physique outcomes or strength outcomes, there can be a little more nuance to it that's important. But with this particular study, they were consuming 1.6 grams per kilo, which is tend to be on the, the lower end of the, the spectrum for what's recommended for hypertrophy. Um, 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on the study and then also why potentially uh, both groups saw similar responses, even though the plant group was, you know, consuming a little bit of a lower protein intake um, than would be, uh, I guess, expected to see the, the same comparable outcomes in, in muscle mass. Yeah, um, you know, the, the study, like you said, um, I'm kind of going off memory here. It was it was ages ago that, that yeah, I yeah. dug into it. But one of the reasons that I, I was really excited about it was before that one, there was a study by uh, Montaigne and colleagues. Um, I'm certain I'm pronouncing that wrong. But they, they were looking at uh, muscle protein synthesis rates uh, and what what they found was a vegan diet uh, actually was quite comparable to an omnivorous diet as long as protein was high. You know, this was a high protein vegan diet. And you might be saying, well, I, you just spent like 10 minutes saying who cares about muscle protein synthesis, right? right? But what they did was they looked at muscle protein synthesis over a 72-hour period, if memory serves. It was either 48 or 72 hours. So when we're talking about protein synthesis over days... This is getting closer into some of those conditions where we can actually start to make tentative inferences about hypertrophy over time. So muscle protein synthesis over 48 or 72 hours is quite a different thing than looking at muscle protein synthesis over six hours. Mm. And so that particular study got me really intrigued, really excited, but it still wasn't that very direct uh, evidence looking at actual hypertrophy and that's that's where this uh, study by Javier Lorraine came in. And uh, it, it was a really excellent study. Like you said, I think it was about 12 weeks, about 1.6 grams per kilogram in each group, um, you know, divided between three or four protein servings throughout the day, spread pretty evenly. Um, and they were doing resistance training. And what I really liked about it was, you know, we talk about hypertrophy, but, you know, it, it's easy to say measure hypertrophy, but then the question is how? Uh, and and right. so sometimes you'll see a study that just does whole body uh, fat-free mass using DEXA, which is a good option, but not a perfect option. And in, in many cases, it does lack precision to identify small differences between groups or between conditions. But they looked at hypertrophy in many different ways. And, and they also looked at at strength changes as well. So they, they looked at strength, they looked at DEXA-derived measures of hypertrophy, they also looked at uh, ultrasound measures of hypertrophy, and if memory serves, they might have also looked at the actual fiber level as well uh, with biopsies. But, but I, I do recall that they looked at hypertrophy from several different perspectives using some methods that that are that do tend to be quite precise and can detect relatively small differences between groups and you know as we've mentioned uh, their their findings were quite positive for people who are interested in more of a plant-based diet because within those conditions where you've got at least 1.6 grams per kilogram per day of total protein you're dividing that across at least three or four meals. Um, you know, and each of those meals is, is delivering plenty of leucine, plenty of essential amino acids. Within those conditions, it looks like these diets are, are fairly interchangeable in terms of accumulating strength gains and muscle gains over time. Now, you mentioned the, uh, the strategy of just saying, hey, let's have more protein, you know, as, as kind of a way to get around some of the shortcomings of individual protein sources on a vegan diet. And generally speaking, I do think that that's a sensible, um, I, I think it's a way to do it that, that does effectively circumvent some of the potential shortcomings of these protein sources. Um, but as many, uh, many listeners will, will probably attest to, um, it's not the most practical advice, right? Mm -hmm. so, so if you are on a you know, plant-based or totally vegan diet, and you're interested in building muscle, um, but you're also interested in keeping your calorie intake low enough that you're not gaining, you know, unwanted amounts of body fat in the process, it can be really hard to say, oh, just eat way more protein. And I mean, on a, a vegan diet, finding lowish calorie protein sources is already hard enough. You know, mm -hmm. like a lot of times, one of the biggest practical um, 
challenges that people run into when they adopt a vegan diet is where am I going to get all my protein from without getting like, you know, 20 grams of carbs for every eight grams of protein that's coming in. And so to just say, hey, eat more protein is uh, it circumvents the issue, but not in a way that is easy to apply in a practical way. You know, finding those really high doses of protein is, is kind of why we're in this predicament in the first place, right? We're trying to seek out ways to make this uh, a practical, easy to implement high protein diet that just so happens to be vegan. So um, there are challenges. And so I think I think one of the things that is really useful about, you know, this this kind of pair of studies that, that's been done recently is it gives us an idea of when you say hi, how high are we talking? You know, how high do we really have to go in order to make these meals uh, maximally or near maximally effective for supporting muscle growth? And it looks like we don't have to go that far out of our way. And so I, I don't think that these studies completely invalidate the idea that, you know, you might want to go a little higher per meal with a vegan diet versus omnivorous within certain intake ranges. You know, I, I think that's still probably true. But the question is, at what point is our, our protein intake high enough that we have effectively taken care of this issue? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that threshold's lower than we expect. So like, if you told me, I insist that I am going to eat one gram per kilogram per day of protein, uh, I'm not willing to budge on that. Uh, and I want to support hypertrophy to the maximal degree possible. In that case, I would say you you probably want to go out of your way to make sure you're eating some very high quality proteins. You know, if, if we're leaving the total protein intake at a set value that is below the optimal range, I think in those circumstances, protein quality at, at the individual source level might become more of a pertinent challenge to work through. But what's really nice about this series of studies is that based on the evidence we have available now, and I'm I'm certain people are going to, you know, in the future, try to replicate these findings and make sure that they hold up. But for now, the evidence would suggest we actually take care of this without needing enormous doses of plant protein. So if we're getting that 1.6, which, you know, like you said, has largely been considered the lower end of the optimal range for, for, you know, muscle building purposes. If we're getting that every day and dividing that into three, four, maybe five equal size protein servings throughout the day, it looks like that's probably going to cover our bases uh, to basically an optimal degree. You know, w- within that context, we don't have to do too much more to, uh, you know, we don't have to put too much more effort into planning out our protein doses. Uh, one thing that is worth considering is over the course of the full day, looking at your amino acid coverage and using something like a complementary protein pairing strategy. Um, you know, I, I think that that is a nice way to, um, you know, you, you can argue the context in which that's critically important and the degree to which it matters. But if you're on a vegan diet uh, or a heavily plant-based diet and you're very interested in maximizing muscle growth or muscle retention, I do think that there's some value in uh, in exploring complementary strategies uh, for protein pairings. Yeah, and that's a that's an interesting um, point to bring up, Eric. Is is the idea of complementary proteins? Like, I guess I guess the idea around combining two different proteins in a single meal or, or more than two is to yeah is to sort of even out some of those shortcomings in in single protein um, amino acid quality. And and of course, in order to achieve, uh, you know, our, as we alluded to before, in order to achieve a significant muscle protein synthesis per meal, we need to achieve a certain amount of leucine per meal. So, um, I, I guess first of all, the question for you is: How important do you feel hitting that certain amount of leucine per meal is for achieving these similar outcomes that we see in the study where they consumed, you know, a decent amount of protein and they, uh, you know, they divided those up into three to four meals per day and they did resistance training. How important do you think within that particular study, uh, hitting leucine per meal, uh, was for those outcomes? Well, I think it's best practice from my perspective to try to get at least two grams of leucine per meal. 
if you can. Um, I, I think we don't have, from my perspective, a totally conclusive idea of exactly how much leucine per, per meal we actually need for maximizing uh, hypertrophy over time. Uh, most people will estimate somewhere in the two to three gram range. I think looking at the longitudinal evidence, two seems to do pretty well. And I think one of the reasons that it's a little bit lower than people have anticipated is because, um, you know, like I said, resistance training sensitizes our muscles to the anabolic uh, response to, to dietary protein. And so, you know, I know a lot of people who, who really are, are adamant, you got to get three grams of leucine per meal. You got to get three grams. Mm. I think that they might be underestimating the anabolic stimulus that's independently coming from resistance training, which does persist, like I said, in many cases, 24, or 48 hours, and, and sometimes even longer, depending on your training status and the exact training stimulus that was applied. So right. I think... Um, there's no downside and plenty of potential upside for shooting for at least two grams of leucine per meal. Mechanistically, it makes sense. Longitudinally, it, it kind of uh, fits well with some of the studies we've mentioned previously. Um, I know at least one of those studies had a meal-by-meal breakdown, uh, and both groups were getting at least two grams of leucine per meal. So, so I, I think that is a definitely best practice. Mm. And fortunately, you don't have to work too hard to go and find two grams of leucine per meal if you're already hitting the type of protein intake that we're talking about. If you're in the you know, 1.6, 1.8 grams per kilogram per day, even higher, and you are dividing that into, like I said, three or four meals a day, the leucine is most likely going to be taken care of. Mm. And generally, I mean, that would, you know, that would equate to, I, I guess if someone, you know, say someone is consuming, you know, 140 grams of protein per day and they, and they split that up into three or four meals, they're going to be consuming, you know, 30, 40 grams of protein per meal. Um, and if we're consuming that from a couple of different protein sources in that meal, they're likely going to be covering their bases. But I think probably where where people can go wrong in this particular scenario is, and this is me looking at some of those tables that you had referenced in regards to, um, I think it was via a, another article, but um, in regards to like the total amount of uh, protein needed to be consumed um, via different protein sources in order to achieve, uh, you know, so 2.7 grams of leucine per meal. And you know, if you're consuming just a single protein source, so say if someone was just consuming a meal of solely wheat protein, you know, they they or solely uh, potato protein or solely uh, pea protein, they'll need to consume different amounts of total protein to achieve that leucine dose. Um, and it becomes very, very difficult to achieve a significant amount of leucine if you're consuming solely wheat protein in a meal because you have to consume a heck of a lot of, or, or for a, probably a better example, oat protein, you know, you'd have to consume, you know, I think it was something between like 250 to 300 grams of oats to achieve your, you know, your leucine threshold for that meal. And, and so, you know, good luck to anyone consuming that amount of oats, you know? So I think th- there's where the, the sort of the practical implications come in and we're potentially, you know, using some, if you are consuming may a, a, maybe a lower leucine protein or a lower lower total quality protein uh you may want to bump that meal up with another complementary complementary protein that maybe is a a higher quality protein source would you say that's an accurate description of 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 a a good sort of practical way of looking at it yeah and i think when it comes to complementary proteins there there's kind of two factors to consider and so one which you've alluded to is when I look at the composition of this entire meal, am I getting a decent amount of leucine in? You know, and like I said, I think two grams is a nice number to shoot for. Um, that, that's the first consideration. And yeah, I, I think you, you probably, it's not a bad idea to just look at, you know, what are my main protein sources? Are they unusually low in leucine? And if so, you know, maybe I have to give some consideration to work some higher leucine sources into my diet. That, you know, that's the one component. 
And that would be on a per meal basis, you know, theoretically speaking. When it comes to essential amino acid coverage, you know, like I said, a lot of plant-based protein sources will lack one or more of the essential amino acids. And by lack, I don't mean a complete lack. It's just not, not an adequate amount relative to the protein dose. And so a big point of debate is within a single meal, do you really need to have complete complementary coverage of those essential amino acids? Or are we more so talking about just throughout the day? Um, I think leucine is probably more pertinent on a per meal basis. And I think the essential amino acids, like it's not a bad idea to get some nice essential amino acid coverage on a per meal basis. You know, I think complementary protein matching is, you know, again, it's kind of a best practice, better safe than sorry type of strategy. Um, But I, I, I don't know if I'm convinced that it is extremely critical. So first meal of the day, maybe, you know, but but then we start talking about you have breakfast at 8 a.m. and then you have lunch at noon. Uh, and and the question is, are all of those amino acids from, from breakfast at 8 a.m., are they just vanished, completely gone? Right. And the answer is no. I mean, digestion, absorption, and clearance of amino acids from the bloodstream, you know, this is something that takes place over fairly long time spans. And so I, I'm not really convinced that that beyond, you know, I, I think maybe the first meal of the day, you might have special attention on that, um, you know, as, and then you consider, you know, when your last meal was, that might be pertinent uh, from the night before. But, um, you know, it, it, on a meal by meal basis, especially later meals in the day, I'm not super convinced that you you need to have perfect essential amino acid coverage in every single individual meal. Um, but it certainly is is not a bad strategy. At, at that point, you know, it's kind of like we, we've got a series of priorities in decreasing order of importance, right? And so the first priority is, are you getting enough total protein throughout the day? That That's number one. Second, we've got, okay, are you dividing that up sensibly? And, and I would say, you know, three or four meals throughout the day, you know, kind of spaced relatively equally, at least a few hours between meals. You know, first thing, total protein. Second thing, how is it distributed? Three or four equal size meals throughout the day. Then you start getting into things like, am I I having enough leucine per meal? You know, that would be kind of the third. And again, this is in decreasing order of importance. That'd be the third factor to consider. And then I would say fourth, even after that would be Maybe at each meal, I take a look and make sure I don't have any glaring, uh, you know, glaring uh, shortcomings in terms of essential amino acid profile. But but I do expect that to some degree, we can kind of borrow some of those essential amino acids from previous meals uh, mm. to an extent that would enable continued uh, synthesis of new muscle proteins. Yeah, no, that's really good. And I guess um, I did... I did- want to touch on branch chain amino acid use in terms of the supplement um i know that that's come up as a as a as a an option for people potentially if hey if they're really focused on look i really want to maximize this meals um losing dose and i am using a lower quality protein in this meal could i just supplement with a branch chain amino acid at the same time, you know, while I'm eating this meal and really maximize the response, I guess it would be the same as combining, uh, combining proteins. Uh, but I think in reality, um, I guess a lot of these discussions come from the idea that someone is consuming like a very low amount of variety of proteins throughout the day. But in reality, people people that's not how people eat you know people eat a a variety of different foods throughout the day and and generally well at least you know clients that i work with uh we're trying to diversify our our meals as much as possible and you know you'll probably have your top three main proteins that you include throughout a day and you'll and you'll sort of recycle those throughout the day but still you're getting a a, probably a a large diversity of different amino acids throughout the day and and that will probably be covering your basis so i guess how much how much uh weight or or stock would you put in in using a branch chain amino acid to i guess bump up the the essential amino acid quality of a particular meal 
So branched chain amino acids are really fascinating because we know that they have a very important role in the body, but I believe they've received uh, a disproportionate amount of interest as a supplementation target. And the reason I say that is because you know we we really would have one of two priorities for this um, strategy, right? So if we're supplementing amino acids in the interest of muscle building, it's usually one of two things. We're either concerned that we're not getting enough leucine to initiate the process of muscle protein synthesis. And if that is the main concern, I personally would supplement with leucine itself. Um, And I have seen some evidence that that might be the way to go. Um, I don't think it's, you know, going to do anything for you if you're getting that, you know, if you're, if you're pretty consistently getting around that two gram per, per meal uh, target, I don't think you're going to benefit from it. But um, you know, if, if it's something you're struggling with, kind of getting to that two gram per meal range, then yeah, maybe some leucine supplementation would help with that. The other potential uh, outcome we're trying to achieve there is getting essential amino acid coverage. And I would say that more often than not, it is not going to be one of the branch chain amino acids that we're lacking. You know, I would say it's probably more likely to be something like lysine or methionine. Right. And so your branch chain amino acid supplement is not going to help with that because mm. it's not going to contain either of those. So I would actually, you know, if I were going to have an amino acid supplement in my uh, toolkit as a, a plant-based dieter, it would either be leucine, probably not, or essential amino acids. Um, so, so they do sell supplements that contain all the essential amino acids. I think that is the most defensible supplementation candidate for these types of applications. Mm. Um, I personally don't use essential amino acid supplements because, you know, I know that I have my bases covered in terms of, you know, my amino acid coverage. Um, But, but I do think that that is a, a defensible and intuitive option if you're struggling with, with getting, you know, uh, enough coverage with your amino acids. Yeah, and I think I guess I guess for a lot of people that likely shouldn't be the case unless under really really rare circumstances. And I say that because I think majority of people uh will be consuming some decent quality proteins throughout the day that are going to be achieving that sort of loosing threshold dose per meal. But I guess to to kind of round this one out and to to give some take-homes to people that are you know, the, the people that are probably listening, uh, a, a lot of them will have already been, you know, ticking off their daily protein. Right? They're getting they're getting 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilo. They're doing that on a consistent basis. You know, that's all fine. They're, they're very consistent with that. And they're spreading that over multiple meals per day because that's just their lifestyle. They eat a breakfast, a lunch, a dinner. They might have a, a protein shake after a training session or whatever. So they're getting that kind of distribution under control there. Um, but then for the people that, maybe really want to dive deeper and nuanced and, and really optimize their response to training by trying to optimize the, you know, the MPS response to a meal and, and really achieve that loosening dose per meal. What would you recommend from, from your own experience, um, you know, even through your, your transition to vegetarianism um, and through your, your uh, assessment of the data, what would be some sort of top, quality proteins that would help them achieve that leucine threshold um, that they could potentially include uh, in their meals uh, on a more regular basis. And, and that way they can, you know, take, take away some, some proteins to focus on. Um, and then maybe we can, maybe they can sort of decide, Hey, look, or oh, maybe I'll include less of this protein and more of this protein going forward. Yeah. I mean, you know, the one that comes to mind, the kind of classic example of a really high quality vegan protein is soy protein. Um, you know, I, I personally do consume a decent amount of soy protein through uh, soy isolate, you know, kind of uh, supplement products through soy crumbles, through tofu. Um, you know, soy, soy is a really nice protein source. Um, another one that, that comes to mind that isn't quite as good as soy, but it's still a pretty good, well-rounded protein source would be uh, mycoprotein. Um, you know, it, it, it's a pretty good option, often sold under the brand name corn with a Q. Mm-hmm. Um, I do 
So th these aren't going to work for vegan applications, but you know, if you're like me and you got mm -hmm. into vegetarian diets because of concerns related to animal welfare, you might be able to think outside the box a little bit. So like, for example, I eat eggs, um, but I get my eggs from an animal rescue. And, and mm. so like what they do is they go and they rescue the chickens from, you know, really bad living conditions and they take care of them. You know, they, uh, it, the, the chickens are like having the time of their life there. You know, it, it is a, an animal rescue that is purely focused on the wellness of the animals. Uh, but the chickens are going to lay the eggs either way. Right. Yeah. And so they, they sell the chicken eggs, which, and then they use the proceeds to feed the cats and the dogs and the cows. And, you know, they, they, they say that the, uh, the chickens donate their eggs to kind of pay rent on the, <laughs> on the animal rescue. You <laughs> That's know? Really so like, cool. so like I, I eat those, um, those eggs, uh, and, and I, I know that for, for a lot of people who eat a vegan diet that, you know, that crosses a line and I certainly respect that. But from my perspective, you know, th that's a way that I'm like getting a, a really high quality protein source, but really feeling okay with the ethics behind how the animals are treated and, and things like that. Uh, another thing that, you know, some people will disagree with for sure, but I've looked into it. I've tried to contact as many people as I could with inside knowledge on this a lot of the whey protein supplements that you do find on the market, uh, the whey is coming from cheese manufacturers and manufacturers of conventional dairy products. And if you talk to anyone who works in that sector uh, of creating conventional dairy products, uh, getting rid of whey is actually a bit of a problem. It is difficult to get anyone to take it from you. Uh, it, whey obviously is kind of this leftover byproduct of the cheese making process. Right. And so there are a lot of small time cheesemakers who one of their biggest operational concerns is I am unable to get rid of my way and I can't dump it because it's bad for the environment and I can't feed too much of, of it to the animals because it doesn't really work for their diets. And so from from my perspective, I, I've, I've kind of become OK with consuming some whey products because I haven't been able to find any convincing evidence that it really provides an upward pressure on dairy production. You know, I, I feel like it that way is going to exist and be either discarded in the environment or made into supplements. It, it's usually just what's left over after they make all the conventional dairy products. Right. So, you know, there are some places where you can kind of look into the actual source of the protein and, and decide for, for you based on, you know, your ethical reasons for adopting the diet, whether or not that kind of fits you know, your perspective. And, and, and I completely agree, uh, or I, I completely, uh, you know, respect opposing mm -hmm. viewpoints who, who might say, no, I, I'm not okay with that egg, uh, justification or the way justification. I totally get totally. that and respect it. But, you know, for, for, for just, you know, straight down the line, vegan, uh, like I said, soy, uh, mycoprotein. And, you know, there's never been a better time to be on a plant-based diet because right now, um, there are quite a few uh, companies that are coming out with more and more plant-based protein blends. So, um, yeah, you see a lot more of you see a lot more of, um, lot more of companies that are putting out these protein products that are blends of multiple different uh, plant-based proteins. So, like you'll see pea plus a couple other things, you know, pea and pumpkin seeds and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, really nice mixtures where they're kind of taking, they're taking care of a lot of that extra work for you, you know? Mm. So instead of you having to go out and say, how am I going to put together some uh, complementary uh, protein sources here? They say, yeah, we're going to take a little bit of you know, I, I've seen some really creative blends of pea and coconut protein and pumpkin seed protein where they blend it all together into a really nice blend, a really nice product. So uh, if you're dedicated to sticking, you know, with a purely, you know, vegan approach to the diet, soy, uh, mycoprotein, and some of those plant-based uh, blends, you know, th those are those are kind of where I would start. Yeah, and I agree. There's there's so many products coming out now, and and we have a few over this side of the world that have um, that are pea protein based in terms of like a, a, a meat substitute, um, mm -hmm. and the really high protein, low calorie density, great options for for people in a you know calorie deficit who are really struggling to hit those higher protein options um, while keeping to a to a calorie.
target. Um, and so that and, and so and pea and, and do you think pea is decent protein as well in terms of quality? Have you looked much into pea protein? I haven't looked into it too much. Um, I think it's pretty solid. Um, I, I'm not certain uh, exactly how the amino acid profile looks off the top of my head, um, but but I do see that. You know, there are a lot of pea. Pro- actually, ha- have a pea based uh, product that that I do consume is like a a ready to drink uh, beverage, and because you know, I know that with all my other protein sources, it's good enough to be one of my protein sources. You know, I, I don't worry too much about that. So, pea I think is a, is a pretty solid option, um, especially in the context of a, a diverse diet with a lot of different protein sources. Yeah. And and I do see that pea is often the base of a lot of those mm. blends I mentioned, where they're doing pea plus you know a bunch of other That's stuff. Right. So th- yeah. you know most of those blends they're going to start with something like pea or something like rice protein, and then kind of build from there. Yeah. And that's, I think that's exactly, I mean, a lot of the pea protein powders uh, that I recommend are a pea and rice blend. Cause I think I know, you know, pea protein is, I think lower in, in methionine um, and then the rice protein is, is higher. And then it kind of has this complementary sort of um, effect on that. And also when you combine pea and rice together, you get this incredible leucine total as well, which is more similar to whey. So I think that's a really good option for people um, in terms of like a, a shake, um, but then also what I'm, what I'm excited to see in the future, Eric, is uh, you know, the development of, you know, corn as in maize proteins and potato proteins and, and how we can, hopefully companies will start to, you know, use the concentrated forms of those products in, in maybe meat substitutes and things like that because of the amino acid profile of, you know, specifically of corn is really high in leucine, which I had no idea about until looking at these tables, um, you know, yeah. and, and higher, like basically, uh, if I'm looking at right here, even as this was uh, leucine per 100 grams for corn is 8.8 and whey is 8.6. So, you know, it's even higher than whey protein. Um, yeah. And then corn, uh, sorry, and then potato on the other hand, also really high leucine 6.7, but also has a, um, a, a large or a high amount of all the essential amino acids within that protein as well so i'm excited to see you know in the future what companies do with those two proteins because i think they could really um make an impact on the the sort of the the protein supply industry um specifically coming from vegetable sources so that's quite exciting too yeah and the nice thing you know you just kind of think back at some of the things we've mentioned some of these protein sources we're talking about peas we're talking about uh wheat corn potato uh, I like chickpeas a lot. I like lentils a lot. Um, all different types of seeds and grains. I mean, th- these are not food sources that are difficult to 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 kind of source in your diet. You know, th- these are really easy to seek out. And and so when it comes to a whole food diet, you can see that it's not super hard to put together a diet that that kind of covers your bases for essential amino acids. And then, like you said, the opportunities. Uh, I mentioned previously, there's just never been a better time to be on a plant-based mm. diet. Um, you know, there, there's enough um, interest now, kind of collectively, that you see the com- companies making these really creative blends of different plant-based proteins. That's only going to accelerate in the years that follow, um, which is really exciting. Even if you're not on a totally plant-based diet, um, there, there's so much more interest collectively in uh you know adopting plant-based diets or even just kind of making some swaps and going into from a you know, kind of traditional omnivorous diet to a more plant-based but still omnivorous diet, you know? And so companies are, are kind of picking up on that demand. And I, I do expect over the next few years, we're going to see better and better products. And I mean, as someone who spent most of their early years lifting on an omnivorous diet, I mean, d- did you ever have a, a whey protein shake before like 2005? I... Oh no, no, because I was still would have been in high school. So I, I kind of came into whey protein when it was like all tasting like milkshakes, and it was just incredible. <laughs> yeah. It, it, so I got into lifting when I was twelve, right? And okay. uh, and like begged my parents to let me go try a protein shake. Uh, you know, let me let me go get some protein powder. Whey protein in the early two thousands was awful. I mean, I can't even imagine how bad it was in like the eighties and nineties, <laughs> yeah. but even in the early two thousands, it was really terrible. The texture was bad. It was kind of like bitter, uh, chalky, didn't mix well. It was 
really, really bad. And then you you just go like five or 10 years later, and it's a completely different world. I mean, the formulations just, they just took off and they got so good. The palatability, the mouthfeel, the texture, the mixability, the flavor profile, they just did magic, you know? And so I'm really excited to see right now, a lot of people say these plant-based protein mixes um, you know, the powders and stuff and the ready to drink beverages, people say, yeah, the flavor isn't very good. Part of me wonders how much of that is, you know, strictly due to the protein sources being used. And part of me mm. wonders if they just need a few years to tinker with it. Because yeah. after seeing, you know, how far away protein came in such a short period of time, I'm really optimistic that some of these plant-based products are going to be really palatable w- within the next few years. And they already are from my perspective, but yeah. but I do think that that there's room to grow and I, I think that growth will happen. Yeah, I think I think there is a few things to that. Like I know that when I was working in a supplement store and that's and this was the early days of when pea protein was coming about and there was a product that we were getting in there and I wasn't vegan at the time and I remember this this pea protein just being horrendous. But people were buying it, you know, but I think I think it almost was going, they were going, you know, number one, probably as early days of protein formulation for plant-based protein. So the, the flavor profile probably wasn't, wasn't quite there, but at the same time, maybe a lot of these companies are also sort of trying to target that more kind of organic, natural flavorings and things like that, where they kind of miss out on the, 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 the market that are coming over from a whey protein and are expecting something, uh, a lot more flavorsome, and I know that when I first tried a pea protein um, after you know drinking whey protein for so many years, I just I just couldn't finish the shake. It was just it was just so bad. But now that I've completely removed those really hyper palatable whey protein shakes, and I only consume a pea and rice protein shake, you know my my palate has changed to some extent, and now I I, I enjoy those. At the same time, I'll say that the the products that we're getting over here now, and the companies that are producing these these plant protein shakes, the flavorings are just getting really, really, really good. So, like you were saying, it just takes time, and I I think um, it's only a matter of time before the, the the flavor profiles are really comparable with some of the whey proteins out there. Yeah, definitely. So to to finish this one up here, Eric, I'd love um, for you maybe just to. Just to wrap it up with a quick summary of maybe the key characteristics of what the listeners need to focus on from a, a protein dietary perspective in regards to optimizing uh, their responses to training. Yeah, I would say, you know, top priority, make sure you're getting enough protein, ideally about 1.6 grams per kilogram per day. Obviously, you know, that number is going to is going to vary if you're extremely lean or if you have, you know, extra body fat, you know, if you're on any extreme of the body fat percentage spectrum, then that number is going to become less applicable, right? So uh, I usually tell lifters 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of total body weight, or somewhere between 2 to 2.75 grams per kilogram of fat free mass. So just lean body mass. Uh, so that's the top priority. Second priority, distribute that protein throughout the day into preferably like three or four equal sized protein servings. If you, uh-oh, I think we got a little uh, tornado warning going around here. Oh, wow. Um, okay. but, uh, yeah, it's it's spring. You know, we, we get those around that's, here. That's irregular, is it? I don't know if you could you hear the little alarm. I could thing? hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so three or four relatively equal sized meals, that would be the way to do it. Um, you want to make sure that you're incorporating some relatively high quality proteins if you can, something that's soy based or a nice mixture, like you said, of like, you know, a, a pea based or, you know, pea and rice kind of blend. Uh, so either seeking out high quality protein sources or being a little more mindful of getting those complementary protein sources that kind of make up for each other's shortcomings in terms of amino acid profile. Uh, And, you know, again, if possible, trying to shoot for that two grams of leucine uh, per meal, that would be a a nice way to do it. 
That's awesome. That's a great round out there, Eric. And uh, I appreciate you coming on and discussing all of that with us. And I know the listeners will, you know, will want to dive deep into this one and, and hopefully have some great takeaways from it to implement. Um, I wanted to give you the floor, mate, just to just to plug, you know, plug some of this stuff that's going on. What are you working on for the rest of the year? And um, and anything you want to you want to let the listeners know about about uh, you know what you guys are doing over at Stronger by Science or at Macrofactor. Sure. Yeah. First of all, I really appreciate the opportunity. It was a pleasure to uh, to be here and to speak with you. Um, I'll be staying busy this year with, uh, you know, Stronger by Science, the articles, the podcasts, uh, the mass research review is our monthly research review. Uh, if you happen to subscribe, you would have heard about all this stuff, uh, you know, six, six months, maybe a year ago. Um, so mass research review is always keeping us busy stronger by science. And like you said, Macro Factor is a diet app where uh, it's it's a really, really efficient uh, tracking tool for your nutrition. Uh, one thing that's really exciting for people on plant-based diets is that the um, it doesn't just track you know calories, protein, carbs, fats. You can also look at fiber. You can you can look at your amino acid totals throughout the day as well. So you can look per meal or, or per day and figure out what your leucine intake is looking like, what your methionine intake is looking like. So there's a lot of utility there. And if you go on the coached mode, it'll also give you targets based on your goal and based on your progress. So it'll kind of continue adjusting You know how many calories you should be, you should be shooting for each day, how much carbohydrate, fat, and protein. It's completely compatible with a plant-based diet and it updates according to your progress and according to your goal. So mainly I'll be staying busy with with all those different projects over over the next year or so. And um, yeah, if you want to check out any of that stuff, you can find all of it over at strongerbyscience.com. And if you want to stay in touch with me, uh, you can find me mostly on Instagram and my handle is at Trexler Fitness. Brilliant, man. Well, I love your work, Eric, and uh, we'll definitely link those ones in the description for the listeners. Um, thanks again for coming on, man. It's been insightful. Uh, it's been really enjoyable chatting to you. Yeah, thanks so much. And there we have it, guys. A deep dive into understanding the nuance of research on muscle protein synthesis and overview of some of the recent studies on plant-based diets and muscle growth and some practical takeaways on what you should actually be doing when it comes to choosing what proteins to eat. I hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully hopefully it was helpful for you. I really enjoyed that discussion, and I absolutely love uh, Dr. Eric Trexler's work as well. Of course, get in touch with him. Check out his work, the Macro Factor Diet app, and if you're a geek like me, sign up to the Mass Research Review. There's always at least 10 tabs open on my laptop with articles to read from Mass, so I will vouch for them and say that it's well worth the investment if you're a coach or just someone, someone wanting to dive a little deeper into the science of training and nutrition. Now, I get it, designing the right diet uh, that hits adequate calories for your goal, daily protein targets, and smart protein selection doesn't actually sound that simple, but it really can be. And I've recently updated my eight-week vegan fat loss mastery course with 20-plus presentations on all you need to know about plant-based fat loss, including a presentation purely on plant protein. I guide you through the whole process and ensure you are meeting your daily targets to fast-track your results. The Fat Loss Mastery course comes alongside my online coaching services now available over at veganbody.coach. And if you're after a muscle gain plan or a fat loss plan, I've got you covered too. So guys, I'll throw the link in the description if you think having someone in your corner for the next little while might be a good move for you. And with that, that's about as much of a sales pitch you'll ever get from me. Let's wrap this one up. Don't be a stranger. Hit me up on IG. Comment on my stories of my boy Trooper. Hard eyes are always welcome. And be sure to throw a quick star rating on Apple or Spotify or any of the apps that you listen to to help the podcast reach more people. It's always greatly appreciated um, and you know makes this whole thing much more worthwhile. And with that, I hope you enjoy the first episode of season three. Uh, I've got 12 episodes planned for this particular season. So keep an eye on whatever podcast app you listen to. Keep an eye on the IG. And of course, if you have any topics you want covered or guests you'd love to see on the show, always love hearing recommendations or suggestions from you as well. I'll leave it there. We'll see you in the next episode, my friends.